take your Bibles and join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter number six. Revelation chapter number six. It's been a while since I've made this statement. It's worth stating again. Most of what we have in the book of Revelation is a retelling, a recapturing, a restatement in symbols and images of what has already been stated in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The same is especially true of Revelation chapter 6. In fact, what we're going to find together is that Revelation chapter 6 is an apocalyptic retelling, a, a, a symbol and image retelling of the basic content of Mark chapter 13. And if you're a part of a discipleship group here, you've had the advantage of having recently considered Mark chapter 13 within your discipleship group. We're going to turn to that passage in just a bit and see the parallels that exist between these two. Revelation 6 speaks to the past, the hope for those first century Christians suffering under persecution and the prospect of martyrdom. It speaks to our present reality that even in suffering when there are difficult days, when darkness seems to close in about us, God is on the throne actively orchestrating the events of our life for our good and for his glory. And Revelation 6 speaks to our future hope that there is coming a day when Jesus comes to resurrect eternally the body of Christ, those who found shelter under the blood of the Lamb, to gather us to himself eternal with the Father and the Son, and to exact justice against the world and all of its wickedness. It really is a word of consolation, of comfort, and of hope for the body of Christ. I, I want us to read chapter 6 together in a few moments. We'll go back to Mark 13 and see some parallels that exist between these two. Just, just another note here. I've tried in the past weeks to argue that Revelation is much simpler than the book itself gets credit for. And I have been refreshed and encouraged by your comments at the simplicity of our approach to the book of Revelation. We have come now in chapter 6 to what I think is the real challenge in interpreting Revelation 6, which is understanding the order or the chronology of the book. Interestingly, almost no one points in popular conversation to this as the challenge, but this is really where the difficulty lies for most in reading the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, we're introduced to this image of Jesus, worthy of all worship and praise. It is a fierce image. It is comfort to those who know him, who've entrusted themselves to him, but it is awe-inspiring and creates trembling in the hearts of those who have spurned him. In chapters 2 and 3, there is the address of the church. There are issues in the church. In fact, compromise has entered in in some instances. The Nicolaitans and Jezebel and other influencers have beset much of the church and their efforts at following Jesus, enticing them to believe that a little compromise, a little sin won't hurt so much. And the church itself is enveloped in the darkness of the world. The world is increasingly evil. There are issues that abound as expressed in Revelation 2 and 3. But there's a faithful remnant as there always is. 
Some are suffering faithfully under persecution, and Antipas has even given his life in martyrdom for the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Revelation chapter 4, we have this image of, of heaven. There is one seated on the throne who is worthy of our worship, the God of all creation, one who has made us in the likeness of his own image. And in his right hand are the judgments, the decrees that God has prepared in order to serve justice in all the world. Problem is, someone must open the scroll. In Revelation chapter 5, it is determined that there is but one who is worthy to open the scroll. He stands in the midst of the elders between the living creatures and the one seated on the throne as one like a lamb slaughtered. His name is Jesus. He draws near the throne and takes the scroll as he alone is worthy to do. And in Revelation chapter 6, the scroll begins to be unrolled or unfolded. And the judgments of God against the evil of the world begin to be revealed. They're revealed first in Revelation 6 and 7 and part of 8 as the seal judgments. With each seal that is removed, a bit more of God's judgment is revealed. And then later in chapters 8 and 9, there are, there are the trumpet judgments and sets of seven. Seven seal judgments and then seven trumpet judgments. And then later in the book of Revelation, there are seven bowl judgments. Bowls filled with the judgment of God that are being poured out on the world. In each case, revealing different details and emphases and a heightening degree of intensity with which the judgment of God is coming. How you understand this ordering or this chronology is critical to understanding the book of Revelation. What I'll say to you is that for the most part, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are covering the same basic events. They're backing up and rehashing with greater detail and with greater intensity the same events. The seal lays out the judgment of God. And then John will circle back by vision and reveal again a, a, a new level of depth detail and intensity in the trumpet judgments covering the same basic period of time. And then lastly, in the bowl judgments, there's a deeper level of depth and intensity about the same judgments that God is exacting against the world in all of its evil. I point that out to note for us as we begin to read the passage in just a moment that John is going to take us right up to the brink of the end in Revelation chapter 6. And then he's going to back up and he's going to do it again. He takes us right up to the brink of the end in the trumpet judgments. And then he's going to back up and do it again. And then he takes us all the way through the end in the bold judgments, culminating in the coming of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and the final judgment of all evil, Satan and his minions cast into the lake of fire and of brimstone. Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse number one. Join me in standing as we read together. Revelation 6 and verse one. Then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow, a crown was given to him and he went out as a victor to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. 
The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. As is often the case in Revelation, again, we have an apocalyptic telling of the message of the gospel. That God has loved the world so much that he sent his only son. That Jesus would come and live without sin in absolute, pristine, perfect righteousness. And in his righteousness, Jesus would go to the cross. That symbol of Roman execution. Jesus would be killed on the cross, not for his sin, but for yours and for mine. Jesus takes our place at the cross. Buried in a borrowed grave, Jesus would be raised again in resurrection power, authenticating, verifying, lending credibility to everything he'd said and done in his earthly ministry, his earthly life, his ministry, his sacrifices, punctuated by his resurrection. At the resurrection of Jesus, he ascends to the right hand of God, is seated in a position of power. And the Bible says that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, has been given unto him. In Revelation 6, Jesus is actively acting on the authority and the power that God has given him. It is not as though he has failed to yet act on this power. Indeed, we're going to see that both in the past, in the present, and in the future, Jesus is exercising the authority the Father has granted him in heaven and on earth. But that John would detail here in these verses a moment in time when he would move with great intensity, vindicating the blood of the martyrs and servicing justice in all the earth. I want us to turn back for just a moment to Mark chapter 13. I promise not to move you back and forth too often, but I think you'd benefit from turning back to that chapter and reading along through a few verses there. Mark 13 is, in my estimation, the framework with which John is working in Revelation chapter 6. 
you've studied this passage in your discipleship groups in recent weeks. Before we look there, I want us to make note of the basic elements that make up Revelation chapter 6. Note that in the first and second seal, there is a horseman that comes conquering, and there is a horseman that comes taking peace from the earth. In other words, what seal one and seal two speak of are the presence of wars and rumors of wars in the world. In the third seal, the judgment is that of famine. The third seal speaks of great famine and starvation and all the world. There are some limitations that are put in place in Revelation 6, but the basic principle of famine is, is certainly a good way of summarizing what this judgment foretells. In the fourth seal, there is death, there is pestilence, there is sword, famine, plague, and even wild animals. Those are the elements that comprise the fourth seal. In the fifth seal, there is the hope of rest for the martyrs. And in the sixth seal, which will be the end of our study this morning, there are these astrological signs, the darkening of the sun, the darkening of the moon, the falling of the stars, the trembling of the earth. Now, back in Mark chapter 13, the setting is Jesus before the temple. He looks out at the temple and Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 and verse number two, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus speaks of the temple. The disciples are intrigued by this comment Jesus makes. And in verse three of Mark chapter 13, the Bible says it's sitting across from the Mount of Olives, across from the temple complex. Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? Now, Jesus is speaking theologically and prophetically when he says, tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Theologically, Jesus is saying that something revolutionary is about to unfold before your eyes. Whereas in the past, the temple of God in Jerusalem has represented the crossroads of heaven and earth where God meets with man and where man meets with God, something revolutionary is about to change. Something revolutionary is about to happen. Redemptive history is about to be turned on its ear. For no longer will man meet with God, nor God meet with man in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. But we'll now meet with God in the body of his only son, Jesus Christ. His body would be torn down in death on the cross. But it would be raised again on the third day, forever the place of our meeting with the Father. Jesus said, no man can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is where we pass over to meet with the Father, the intersection of heaven and earth. But there's something prophetic about what Jesus says here as well. Jesus speaks prophetically of the destruction of the temple and the fall of the city of Jerusalem that takes place in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, the Roman Caesar Titus sends his troops in and the city of Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is pilfered for its gold, its silver, and other fine metals and pearls. The, the stones are literally toppled off atop one another and everything is carried away from the temple complex. So in answering the question they have, when will these things be and what will be the sign of these things coming to pass? Jesus is primarily for the present hour, at least the hour present to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, 
addressing issues related to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But as he so often does, Jesus turns the conversation in a different direction before this conversation finishes and speaks of issues relevant to the second coming of Christ. He goes away that he might come again to receive us unto him in order that where he is, we might be also. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 5, Jesus began by telling them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Already in Revelation, John has addressed the issue of deception. The Nicolaitans, uh, Jezebel, other influencers have deceived the church and led many astray. But he goes on in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Now you see the basic elements of Revelation 6 are already represented here in Mark chapter 13. Speaking of what is to come in the fall of Jerusalem but later steering that in the direction of discerning the signs of Jesus's second coming. In verse nine, the Bible says, but you be on guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrins and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is a key indicator of the signs of the times, right? The good news, that is the message of the gospel, that Jesus died in our place, that he rose again the third day and bears all authority in heaven and on earth. This message must be preached to all nations, to all peoples in all corners of the earth. And then the end will come. That's Matthew's contribution. What Mark tells us in Mark chapter 13 is that the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. But Matthew adds this additional insight from the teaching of Jesus, noting that this is the key indicator that the end is coming. The gospel must be preached in every corner of the world, and then the end will come. But Revelation 6 makes its own contribution to this conversation. Turn back to Revelation 6 for just a moment to verse number 9. Again, I promise I won't turn you back and forth constantly, but I need you to see this at this point. Revelation 6 and 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. So Mark says the gospel must be preached in all the earth. And Matthew helps us to see the addition that the gospel being preached in all the earth is essential to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the insight added by Revelation chapter 6 is that a key component of the the advancement of the gospel in all the earth is that a sufficient number of men and women would bleed and die for the advancement of the gospel before the end would come. It's a part of God's predetermined plan that we would lay down our lives for the advancement of the gospel and not until the number is complete will Christ come Again, that seems to be the strong implication of our passage. And yet again, a connection that exists between Mark chapter 13 
and Revelation chapter 6. If you go further in Mark chapter 13, down to verse number 24, this seems to be where Jesus takes a decided turn away from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple to focus exclusively on his second coming. Listen to what the Bible says. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. So these signs in the heaven that we read of in Revelation chapter 6 are the signs that Jesus offers as immediately preceding his second coming. You'll see the sun darkened. You'll see the moon failing to shed its light. Stars falling from the sky. The sky itself, the celestial powers are shaken. And then you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in great glory and in great power. So it will be. Now because I enjoy antagonizing a few of you, I would ask you first. What is described in Matthew, or Mark rather, 13, 24 through 27? The answer is the second coming of Jesus. Now I'd like to ask you that you consider a literal reading of Mark 13, 24. As I ask, when will the second coming of Jesus happen? I would have you to note that Mark 13, 24 says it will be after the tribulation of those days. So now that you're suitably antagonized for the day, at least a few of you are, we can go back to Revelation chapter 6 and look specifically at our passage. All of the basic elements of Revelation 6 are derived from Mark chapter 13. Appropriated now in a slightly different way. Jesus using most of these signs and symbols to speak of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now being leveraged in Revelation 6 to speak of his second coming, his ultimate coming, but with implications for past and present. That's a lot, but we'll unpack it here. Revelation 6, 1. Then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. The word come here, the invitation here grammatically is connected to the horseman. He's inviting the horseman to come. Verse 2, I looked and there was a white horse. And the horseman on it had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. When he opened the, the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. In the language of Mark chapter 13, what is described in the first and second seal are wars and rumors of wars. Specific to the second seal, this horseman who comes to take peace from the earth is again in the language of Mark 13, turning nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom so that they would slaughter one another as it's described in Revelation chapter 6. Now, the fixation of most American Christians in passages like this is to determine what the signs of the last days are going to be so we can know how everything is unfolding. There is a fascination, an intrigue about that. That's where our mind always goes. But I want you to know, noted, 
that God does not pass over the desperate need for hope and consolation in this first century context in order to scratch the itch of our American intrigue. There is a past, present, and future element about all of the book of Revelation and its application. For example, in the present, that is present to John, present to the first century, and present to those who are suffering under Roman oppression. There are applications unique to their setting in each of these seven seals. The first horseman is a white, is riding on a white horse, and he comes conquering nations. Word on the street in the first century, the, the coffee pot conversation in the Roman setting was that the Roman Empire would eventually fall to the Parthians. If we're going to succumb to any other power, it's going to be the Parthians. They just have a knack for defeating us in battle. They're constantly pestering us along the outskirts of our empire. The Parthians will be the people that overthrow the Roman Empire. The Parthians were known for their charioteers and their horsemen. They were adept in battle. They were skilled in battle and quite technologically advanced in battle because of their horsemen, because of their horse in general, and because of their charioteers. Like most armies, they had a designated color that they would bear in battle array. Their color was white. And so in this first century Roman context, to speak of the first horseman as riding a white horse, a horse cloaked in white, and to speak of horsemen who were invading an area, conquering as they go, would ignite in the mind of any Roman Christian that this oppressive empire, though it seems beyond our ability to influence, though it's more than we can push back against, will ultimately fall to the judgment of God. Not some far off distant 2,000 years from now judgment of God, but a judgment that is actively at work at the edges of the empire in the present, more and more creeping into the heart of the empire. There is a present to the first century application for each of our seals that must be discerned first before we can take any hope or consolation for ourselves in our present existence. What you'll note about each of these seal judgments, wars and famines and earthquakes and hunger, is that all of them can be found in today's Sunday paper. It, it isn't just that God is going to move in judgment somewhere in the future, but that God is actively moving in judgment in the present. That there are acts of judgment unfolding at the present hour against those who've shaken their fist at heaven and spurned the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are moments, sometimes extended seasons in our life, when it seems as though injustice is advancing, when the righteous are, are oppressed, and when the unrighteous are moving ahead progressively. All the more, it seems as though the unrighteous have the leg up in this life, but the righteous are suffering. And there is certainly an element of truth about this reality. But make no mistake, God is not on pause until certain boxes have been checked in order that he might bring judgment against those who have spurned the promises of the gospel. Actively at work in the first century. Actively at work at the present hour exacting justice against the unjust. Look at verse 5. The Bible says here, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse 
The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hands. You might immediately think of the scales of justice, but these are a different kind of scale. I heard something like the voice, uh, like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but don't harm the olive oil and the wine. This is a judgment that concerns famine. We don't trade in denarii. You won't pay for your check at the local Mexican restaurant in denarii after church today. It's sufficient for us to note that this is incredibly expensive grain. Something has happened to cut off the grain supply and therefore cut off the food supply for many. There is a measure of mercy in what's described in our passage. Don't harm the olive oil and the wine is the instruction that's given to this particular horseman. There's something of a juxtaposition that's being established between the judgment of God and the judgment specifically of Nero in times past as the Caesar of Rome. In order to punish certain localities, Nero ordered the destruction of vineyards in those areas. Now, if a grain crop is destroyed, you can get back on track. You can recoup what was lost within a calendar year. If a grain crop is destroyed, you replant the next year and harvest rolls around every 12 months. But if a vineyard is destroyed, a source of wine and oil, it could be an economic disaster for a community or a region for decades to come as the vineyard keeper worked to restore that vineyard, which had been in process for decades in order to bring forth a yield of olive oil and wine. Even as the judgment of God is coming in our passage, there is an element of mercy. There's a justice about God's judgment as it's unfurled before the Roman Empire in our passage. Verse 7, the Bible says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. I think historically in the translation of these colors, we've not always done them a great deal of service. Someone asked me even before services started this morning, if Jesus was the rider on each of these horses that go out. The answer to that is no, Jesus is depicted differently when he rides a white horse in victory later in the book of Revelation. But I think sometimes the way we render these Greek colors kind of creates confusion in that particular regard. This pale green horse bears the color of death. In fact, the word from which pale green is translated is the Greek word chloros, which is where we get the brand name or the English word Clorox. If you've ever seen it in a cup or poured it out in, uh, in any amount or measure whatsoever, it's got that pale green. You can see through it, but there's that pale green color about it. It's the color that skin begins to take on when the process of decomposition sets in to the dead body. This horseman brings death and hell or Hades is following after him. And the Bible says here that it was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. We're having a fair amount of conversation in the office about the book of Revelation, as you might imagine, about last week's sermon, about what next week's sermon is, about this passage or that passage. Caleb, 
who does finance for us mentioned an illustration from a sermon he heard on Revelation that I thought was, was brilliant and I think could be helpful to us. We're seeing things from these different perspectives. Yesterday, you watched college football games to your delight or dismay. And probably this afternoon, you will watch National Football League games. Inevitably, at some point in that game, the game you watched yesterday or the game you'll watch today, there'll be a questionable call. There'll be something that is in question, something not clearly seen by a referee. And they'll go to replay. And they'll take far too much time in replay. But as the officials are huddling together and looking in that little screen, they run out to them on the field. They'll show in the television presentation of the game replays from different perspectives or camera angles for you to observe. This is kind of what the book of Revelation is doing. In the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, you're getting different camera angles or perspectives on the same series of events. In the case of the scrolls or the seals, you're getting an up-close view primarily of an earthly perspective on judgment. What does the judgment of God feel like? How is the judgment of God experienced on earth? In the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9, they back up a little bit from this and give a little broader perspective. You're seeing a little more of the earth's perspective on judgment and touches of the cosmic effects of God's judgment. In the bold judgments, which are the last example, you have the broadest panning out of this apocalyptic camera, and we're seeing primarily the cosmic effects of judgments. It's not the, it's not the judgment of God on earth in the bowls. It's the judgment of God against the beast, the judgment of God against Satan, the judgment of God against the minions of hell, the judgment of God as the authority of Jesus bears itself out in the supernatural realm. Notice here in verse 8, References made to authority being given to this horseman over a fourth of the earth. When we move over in the weeks to come to chapter 8, the, the fraction that's key in the trumpets is one-third. For example, in chapter 8 and verse 12, the Bible says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. In verse 11, the Bible says, the name of the stars, Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. In chapter 9, in verse 15, the Bible says, so the four angels were prepared for hour, day, month, and year. They're released to kill a third of the human race. In chapter, uh, in chapter 6, where we are this morning, an angel has authority over one-fourth, but in chapters 8 and 9, the next series of judgment, it's one-third. I'm, I'm reminded of this marketing effort on the, on the part of McDonald's from back in the 80s. It was made viral by social media. Apparently, McDonald's tried to market a one-third pound hamburger. The problem is it didn't sell because so many people thought that one-fourth, as in the quarter pounder, was more than in the one-third pound hamburger. So I'll just note for the sake of clarity that one-third is more than one-fourth, right? So what you're seeing here in the seal judgments is, is a view that only affords for you to see a third of the earth. But in the trumpet judgments to come, the camera is panning out. You're seeing a broader picture. And now a full one-third of the earth can be seen in judgment. 
before the bold judgments where the camera pans completely out and the full judgment of God is, is able to be seen by us in Revelation, both in heaven and on earth. So we're getting all of these different perspectives. Back to the passage at hand, Revelation 6 and 9, which I think is really the most precious part of the passage. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. I think, I think that the imagery here is of the executioner's block, the place where they would bring Roman Christians to cut off their head in judgment. The executioner's block has become the altar of God. The executioner's block has become the place where the believer goes to offer himself a living sacrifice unto God. Verse 10, the Bible says they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they'd been killed. Again, the contribution that Revelation 6 makes here is to note the essential nature of our dying to ourself and in some cases literally dying for the advancement of the gospel to the second coming of Jesus come back to this in our closing verse 12 the bible says i saw him open the sixth seal a violent earthquake occurred the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair the entire moon became like blood stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind the sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place I mentioned earlier that all of the elements, virtually all of the elements of Revelation 6 can be found in today's Sunday paper. But we've yet to see anything like what is revealed in the sixth seal in our human experience. When the sun was darkened and the moon failed to shed its light and the stars fell from the sky and the islands and the mountains were themselves moved from their place. Verse 15 says, the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and of the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Kings and nobles, the oppressors of God's people hide in caves in the cleft of mountains. And they cry out to the rocks and the mountains that they would fall and crush their brains lest they face the wrath of the Lamb. And John has brought us right up to the brink of the end. It's almost as though if John had looked up as he receives this vision, he might have seen the Son of Man coming in great glory and power, riding the very clouds of heaven. This is right up to the edge before John begins to circle back and tell again in greater detail the judgment of God that has come and the judgment of God that will come. 
I, I, I hint at this, and this is, this is not the kind of thing that should determine fellowship or cre create a great deal of division, but I, 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 don't, I don't buy or subscribe to this left behind idea of the second coming of Jesus that we're going to be plucked out and then it's going to get really bad and then Jesus is going to come a third time for a variety of different reasons. Most importantly, because of Mark chapter 13 and verse number 24, that passage that I cited moments ago when I sought to antagonize some of you a bit in jest. But I really do concern, I really am concerned at times when I hear the way these kinds of things are talked about. You, that may be your position and we don't have to break fellowship over that. And I'm not angry with you and, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure that there's always a a ton of difference in the way you would conduct your life, depending on how you understand the unfolding of the events of the last days. But it, it does concern me when I hear from people at times, at least hints at the suggestion that if somehow, some way, something is left undone in the human heart, it might be rectified in that time between the second coming of Jesus and the third coming of Jesus, wherever that comes from. Now, I want you to consider the severity with which Jesus comes in judgment in the passage before us and ask yourself how it is that you envision any hope for recourse or rescue when the very rocks and mountains fall to crush your brain. And that's a preferable outcome to facing the wrath of the lamb. I think somewhere along the way, there's been this mythological development in our understanding of the second coming of Christ that's made this margin for error, margin that simply does not exist. When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great glory and great power, it's too late. It's too, it's too late. He comes in salvation for those who've been marked by the blood of the lamb, but with a sword of judgment to wield against those who have spurned the precious promise of the gospel. I want us to go back, and I know our time is up, to the fifth seal for just a moment. And I want us to note together that this is the strength and stay of our heart and soul. What is described here is just a treasure. Lord, how long? Here beneath the executioner's block are those who've been martyred for their testimony, the testimony of the word of God and their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. The present application of this passage is that you and I would leave today with our chest swelled and our head held high, and a sense of invincibility about ourselves, that whatever may come to pass in our life, there beneath the altar is a place for us, a place of nobility, a place of reward, a place of celebration clothed in white. We have given ourselves a living sacrifice unto God. Everything else is in his hand. Here at the altar of God, this Mortality will be clothed in immortality. There at the altar of God, this corruptible will be clothed in incorruptibility. Nothing can be taken from us in this life that God will not give back and all the more there beneath the altar of God where we give ourselves a living sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, we are by resurrection power invincible against that day. 
God has signed and sealed and delivered our salvation. And even the mechanisms of this world set to move against us only hasten the reception of the fullness of our salvation. Think of what happens in the moment a Christian is finally cut down when he gives his life for the advancement of the gospel. What he's been waiting for for so long is fully received beneath the executioner's block are the heads and hearts of those who've given themselves as a living sacrifice unto God. And what seemed to have been robbed of them from an earthly perspective had been restored to them with eternal significance. Brothers and sisters, this is our strength and stay. When the diagnosis is not what we had hoped it would be, when the circumstances of our life seem to have turned against us, when we are, God forbid, cut down for our faith in Jesus Christ, when the unexpected accident happens, when the unforeseen is our present reality, there awaits for us at the altar of God resurrection body, eternal life, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Do you know him this morning? Do you treasure him in your heart? I think sometimes Christians have this idea that God has set the earth on its axis and is leaving it out there to spin around until he determines to interject himself again. Nothing could be further from the truth. One of the most endearing attributes of God's character to me is his unwillingness to involve himself in philosophical conjecture. Instead, he seeks to inject himself into our historical circumstance and to bring about a remedy. Just like in the, in the practical realm, I, I, I hate to see people standing around looking at a problem, talking about how to fix it with no intention of ever really doing anything to bring a remedy to the problem. It's like I, that, that troubles me, right? I don't know why it bothers me to the degree it does, but it, it bothers me. In, in my younger construction days, I used to say, do something, even if it's wrong, just do something, just do something. God doesn't give himself to coffee pot conversation, water cooler conversation, conjecture about the presence or problem of evil, but inserts himself in human history brings about a resolution. The resolution's name is Jesus. Jesus who would bleed and die on our behalf, atoning for our sin. Jesus who would come again on the last day, wielding the sword of judgment, exacting God's justice against every sin not atoned for at Calvary's cross. God has stepped into human history and his only begotten son brought the answer to our greatest problem presence of sin and evil, not only in our heart, but in the world around us. Look to Jesus before it's forever too late. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these moments to give consideration to the teaching of, of these verses. Pray God that you would hide them away, both word of, of Revelation 6 as well as the precepts of Revelation 6 in our heart that we might not sin against you, but furthermore, that we might relish your goodness, your authority, and your power over all the earth. And I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, 
that you would give us the kind of heart that would willingly go to the altar of God to make of ourselves a living sacrifice. Fill us with your spirit and make us those kinds of followers of Christ. God, I pray that you would guard us against deception, that you would help us to rest, to find our hope and our comfort in the promise of your authority over all things, both heavenly and earthly. God, I pray that you would seek out and save the lost in these next moments. You would empower the church to invade the community around us with the life-changing message of the gospel. In Jesus' name.